Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-month progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, which now, with now 58 episodes, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the Iconic Journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for what is now the 60th episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Paul McDermott. Paul is the CEO of Washington Real Estate Investment Trust, known as Wash REIT. Paul uh, grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, and he was a competitive swimmer and was the youngest of three in his household. So he has a very competitive mindset from that. His father was a naval intelligence um, agent and was grew up in a fairly strict household growing up. So he had boundaries and knew what he had to do. He went to school at Shepherd University in, uh, in West Virginia and swam there competitively. Came out, started his career as, as an accountant, and then subsequently joined <clears throat> Centennial Development Company, an office developer in Northern Virginia who fostered people like Charlie Nelson and David Ross, who formed the 
Atlantic Realty. And then Charlie subsequently did Washington Property Company. I interviewed Charlie for the podcast. Paul was there for a couple of years, joined Acacia Life, rose to run the real estate department there. He had exposure to sophisticated real estate investors at the board there. He also met Ray Ritchie, another podcast guest of mine who they hired and formed partnership with to redevelop their headquarters downtown and pursue opportunities together. Paul joined Lend Lease subsequently and then went on to be with the Rockefeller Group prior to joining Wash Reed. When he took the job, he knew that he had to be a change agent as the company brought him in to take on restructuring the portfolio and looking looking differently at the firm. So he did it immediately by hiring a research fellow and building a research division. He started selling unprofitable assets, focused on growth opportunities, expanding the multifamily space. But, and then last year culminating in selling the bulk office and retail portfolios in two different large transactions. First one to Brookfield for office and Rosenthal retail for the retail properties. So now they're a multifamily focused firm. They only have the Watergate office building left and as a non-multifamily asset going forward. They're bringing their property management in-house and rebranding the company to be more of a consumer-focused firm. Paul's personal life revolves around his family and some nonprofits he supports. Just to let you know, for this episode, we will not include a postscript, as my colleague Colin Madden is unavailable this this time. He'll be joining me again on future episodes. So without further ado, please please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Paul McDermott. Thank you. Paul, welcome to Icons of DCR Real Estate. Thank you. John, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today. So you're currently CEO of Wash Reed, one of the oldest REITs in, in, in history. When you came in as CEO in 2013, the company's portfolio was a mix of office, medical office, industrial, retail, and multifamily focused in the metro DC area. In the past eight to nine years, you and your team have transformed it into almost a pure play multifamily REIT, now reaching out to Southeast markets from the DC days. Talk high level about how your perspective of the company when you joined and how you thought about the challenge ahead of you at that time. Sure. Well, let's, you know, from a from a macro level, when you looked at at what was then, you know, called RIT, it really too many asset classes with a regional concentration risk. And I think our goal, you know, and, and the goal of the board was really to try to simplify the story. You know, regionally live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, look at right now the DC recovery, it's it's being outflanked by other gateway cities demonstrably. And we really wanted to go through a Kind of a deconstruction process when I came in and really kind of take apart the erector set and build it back. And, and what that was, was really just involving a triage process of the people, the portfolio and, and our processes and how we're reallocating capital. And this was right after the group global financial crisis, right? Correct. Correct. And, you know, quite frankly, D.C. had always been a solid, as you know, in, in past cycles, D.C. had always been a 
very solid performer. But it, in my experience, and you know, I've been doing this 37 years now, DC was really emerging as a laggard in a number of respects. And I, I know we'll talk about that as we progress, but it was, we had to make some tough decisions, but really, you know, two things, too many asset classes and needing to expand the geographic footprint. And you can't do it all, obviously, in one fell swoop. But, you know, when I took the job, it really was, and, you know, the mandate from the board was uh, change. And it was really rebuilding the plane at 36,000 square, 36, I said square feet, 36,000 feet and keeping all your passengers happy. So it was, it was quite a task. Another headwind that I didn't bring it up earlier is sequestration happened on that same correct too, right correct so that made it tough for deployments this region the numbers i saw this region had i think about 73 billion dollars stripped out of it from sequestration and that was you know that was one of the torpedoes that uh, that hit the boat and that really the re- the recovery of that i'm not you know, bashful saying it's it was easily a decade to get us back on our feet, and even some parts of the some parts of the economy still haven't recovered from the sequestration. And then the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit right on top. Right. Correct. So at that moment, when you joined, what did you see as your first step, and how did you implement it? I'd love to tell you there was just one step, John, <laughs> <laughs> but. You only do one thing at a time, right? <laughs> well, when you when you meet with aggressive investors and uh, you meet with angry analysts, you don't have the luxury of time. They made that everybody made that very clear, including our board. And so, we announced multiple changes were going to take place at one time, and we talked about our triage process, talked about recalibrating the por- portfolio, essentially talked about de-risking the portfolio because I think we had a number of a number of situations that could have gone the wrong way for Wash Reed. And for me, and I was very, you know, very clear about it in my interview, I wanted this company to have a, a research arm. I think small cap REITs, you know, could really be an effective way. You look at the big guys, you know, great, they do a deal. It doesn't really move the needle like it does for a small cap REIT, but I wanted everything predicated on research. So one of my first hires, was our head of research now, Grant Montgomery. And he was coming over from Delta Associates, had a background in multifamily. And so we made everything research-based and we went back to kind of just bread and butter discipline on if the numbers didn't numbers didn't match up, we didn't we didn't pursue, we did not allocate capital. And we kept really pounding that home. And that really you know, that really fostered us kind of getting back to basics. And one thing that, that you'll learn very quickly in here, you know, your investors that are portfolio managers, they want to make their own decisions. They don't want, you know, Paul McDermott making their investment decisions for them. What I mean by that is the multiple asset classes, the diversified portfolio, very, very tough in the in the public space, you know. If they want to be in industrial, they'll go with an industrial REIT. If they want to be in office, they'll go with an office REIT. They don't want one REIT in five asset classes or four asset classes. So it was very clear that that we, you know, had to come in. We had to simplify the story. And that's, you know, that's what we set out to do. We really looked at all of the assets. Some needed some TLC. 
some were ambulatory and probably could be fixed with capital and some we just really had to had to prune away from the portfolio and de-risk it. And the, the big thing for us though, John, was really changing the narrative on RIT, you know, and I didn't really want to talk about the past. I wanted to talk about the future and communicate our vision, right. communicate simplifying the story, de-risking the portfolio, cleaning up the balance sheet. And, you know, I wanted us to play at a high level. And I, I believe that, you know, we're there now. I believe we were there before we sold office and re, but it, it wasn't without some pain, without doubt. And, you know, we had some investors that, you know, left the fold, but fortunately they've come back. But we are still trying to impress upon, like, this isn't your granddaddy's writ. It's a, it's a different company now. And you know that personally from, sure. from your observations. Yeah, well, we could go into the history of, the, of, you know, how it started, you know, with Frank Kahn and the whole story of that. But the orientation of the company is clearly different today than it was then. It was just the way they acquired assets, the way they looked at real estate was completely, it was like a totally different <laughs> framework completely. Yes. So, and that was apparently a goal of yours from, from the get-go, which is, which is great that you've achieved what you have. So before going through the entire trajectory of, of your efforts, let's go back to your origins, Paul. And uh, what led you to want to tackle such big, big challenges? Tell us about your origins, youth, and uh, parental influences. Well, I'll say, I'll say something about you know challenges. I... I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't want to be challenged from the time I could walk. Sometimes that was good for my parents, sometimes not so good. But I, I really What's I, the first challenge. The first challenge I remember as a child was just trying to compete with my brother and my sister. I'm the youngest. And, you know, probably competing for parents' attention. And I had different different ways of doing that. But I would say I was, you know, I started swimming when I was five. And I, I just like a fish to water, I took to it and loved it and still love it. But I remember, you know, losing my, losing time trials and, and not getting put in the A meet. And I literally didn't go home. I went and sat in a sewer and <laughs> a sewer pipe that was down by the pool and cooled off. Where was this? This was Glenwood Pool in Silver Spring, Maryland. Glenwood, sure. And okay. I, I cut my teeth there and, you know, my fondest memories of my childhood are at that pool. And it's it's just, it was an extraordinary place to grow up. I grew up right off of Forest Glen Road. I went to St. John the Evangelist School on Georgia Avenue. And then I went to St. John's College High School. When I went, it was all boys. Military. It was a full military school and we wore the West Point Grays. We were actually the last class, my graduating class was the last class to have those West Point Grays. And it just had an enormous influence on my life. The discipline, you know, the the structure, I probably, that I benefited from that greatly when I was younger. I probably needed some structure. And uh, that really, that really helped me as I moved into college. And, but it was, it was an ideal setting for someone like me to grow up in. And so, I, I cherish the time. So swimming was a a big thing for you as a kid is that it? swimming was i swam all the way, all the way through? i swam all the way through college yes i did you compete in college in swimming i did compete in college in swimming really yes i did so it's 
it's interesting. My son, my old, my younger son, did as well. He swam at Princeton, and they were they did pretty well. They won four straight Ivy League championships while he was there. So it's the swimming culture is an interesting one. It is. It's a brotherhood. It's a family. You know, we had I had an exceptional coach in college, but again, very disciplined. Uh, mm-hmm. You got to put in the yards, and you got to yeah. like. You got to like long hours, and that's that's. So you get up at four in the morning and go to tra- training and all that. Get up at four in the morning in college uh, in the winter. You know we were doing two a days. Right. Had to lift before that in the water by quarter of five, swimming till seven thirty, seven forty five. So you did year round swimming then when you were a kid as well. I did not. Oh, you did not. My dad, my dad wanted me, and I'm very. You look back at it in hindsight. My dad wanted me to be well-rounded, and so I played all sports at oh, St. John yeah. Evangelist. Uh, and swimming was really a summer thing in Montgomery County Swim League. Right, and that was a dominant. You know, that was a dominant league on the right. East Coast, and so really enjoyed it. But none of it would have happened in in the McDermott House if you didn't get the grades. So no grades, no sports, no social activities. So my Did parents go to St. John's as well. My older brother went to St. John's and my sister went to the Holy Name Academy in Silver Spring. Okay. Uh, that's that's now closed. I think it's a uh, retail mixed use development now. Right. But uh, yeah, we all uh, we all went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. And so what did your parents do? Well, my mom and dad had, you know, a huge influence on my brother, my sister and I. And. I, I idolized my parents, probably didn't always show it like I could have, like any, any child, but they just sacrificed so much for us. My dad started out as a police officer in Boston when he came back from 22 and came down here, was an agent, was in naval intelligence. And when he finished his career up, he was the director of security at state and really? kind of ran everything. Yeah. And so my father is... So he's a civil servant. He was civil service his whole life, and you know, I think his goal was to have me follow in his footsteps. I had agents show up unannounced at my college and do a background investigation, and to get me a TS, so I could go go into that. I chose a different path, obviously, uh, than that. But my dad really, you know, he was trying to look out for me. I know that. And my mom came down from New York, and she grew up, you know, in the Bronx. And they met at a dance in New Jersey at one of those summer club dances in New Jersey. And uh, they moved down here together. And my dad and mom lived, started over in Fairlington Village and then moved over to Maryland. They had my brother and sister over there. And then I was born at Sibley Hospital. Mm -hmm. And my mom at that time, you know, my dad traveled a lot. Like when Nixon went to China, he was gone for six nine months i can't really recall but uh, that was probably 72 and my mom you know was the disciplinarian was the whole thing soups to nuts and my mom didn't drive so we walked everywhere in silver spring and but uh, just the what she what she put up with from my brother and i was quite (laughs) admirable she did a great just a fantastic job i just just lost her 90 days ago. No. And listen, she, if she was 91, had a full, rich life. She was a tremendous lady. And I made some remarks about her at the funeral. And just lucky I had the parents I did. They really looked out for their kids. They were, they were strict. They were disciplinarians. But they were also, you know, there were, there were a lot of attributes that really 
pressed on their on their children sure. and it just did they give you enough rope to hang yourself to some extent and yes they did and i did a good <laughs> job at that when i was younger i i was i was definitely probably the more the more exploratory i will call it lightly at from my rather than my brother and my sister my the sister. younger one usually is yes i i pressed the envelope probably a little bit more uh-huh. at different stages in my life my parents were there dad loving thundering velvet hand and you know my mom was was just as tough but they really they tried to set all three of us up for success mm-hmm. and it took a lot of sacrifice to do that so i uh, can't can't implore enough how how lucky my brother and my sister are to, to have the parents that we had so, so you said you swam in college where was that i went to shepherd college that's where i graduated from now shepherd university and yes i was a swimmer there some of my closest friends today are are from Shepherd. There's uh, six of them that we, you know, we still all collude together and we get together every year, play golf, you know, just, it's, it's just such a joy to be around those so guys. Just, I was in business finance okay, and, you know, had, had great teachers. Some of our teachers up there because we're so close to DC, a couple of them were lobbyists and would come up and teach, especially public finance. I would say as far as, you know, a real influencer, my coach, Dr. Rick Gibson, he was, he was really, he was scientific about approaching swimming and about approaching a tear down, a taper, but he was somebody that, you know, demanded excellence out of you. And he really made us put in the yards and you know, you know, that story. And I'll never forget one time we had a, we had a horrific snowstorm up there. I think it was like three or four feet and I'm sitting there, you know, I was like, it's, it's going to be four feet. We can go out tonight. So I roll the, roll most of the team down to uh, the place was called the penny postcard in, in Shepherdstown. And we stayed out because there would be no practice at four 30 in the morning. And the next morning at four 30 loud banging on my door, and there's my coach in cross-country skis saying, <laughs> I made it in. Where is everybody? And that was probably one of the worst practices of my life. Two hours sleep. and But it really, Shepard allowed me to really kind of express myself after military school. And I needed that. And I got exposed to different types of music, different different people, different cultures. I would, you know, go with some of my roommates to Ohio and experience like what how they grew up. And it, it was really a, it was a fascinating landscape for me. And I, I really enjoyed Shepard so much. For me, it was probably going to be Shepard or James Madison. Yeah, I wanted to stay close to home. And I just couldn't say enough about the, about the university. And, you know, I went back, I was fortunate enough to go back there and speak in 2018, do the commencement address. Oh, and that's cool. It was just so great to see you know, the, the facilities and how everything's been upgraded. Any professors still there that you had? A couple were just of council and, and right. still there. And I got to, I got to see a couple of them, but it really was, I just love the way that school's grown. And, you know, this region's been a big proponent of that growth. Mm-hmm. So, that's awesome. but good. So then why? Well, so my, as I told you, my father wanted, probably wanted me to be an agent and I, I really didn't want anything, you know, not, not somebody I can't picture myself carrying a gun. And I just sat down and had a very difficult discussion with my Did father. Did he have a gun all the time? His, his 
not not all the time not all the time but there were there were times when he was definitely caring you know and depending on i guess the situation but my first job was a staff accountant at advanced technology systems in northern virginia yes and i made it a year to the day i knew that job was not for me i liked i just really wanted to get out and you know experience my surroundings uh, a bit more. Unfortunately, during that time, I lost my dad. And that probably had the most profound impact as an event on me almost to this day. It's tough losing your father, you know, you're 21. It's, it's, it's a hard time. But for whatever reason, I, after that funeral, I found another gear. And I found another level of intensity and just said, okay, your the stuff the stuff that you have done and stuff it's in the rearview mirror now it's time to start looking forward made a decision i wanted to go to graduate school at night you know i still had to have a day job so i i switched got out of the accounting job and i went with a company called centennial development corporation mm-hmm. pete scamardo and i was kind of the numbers rat you know, I, I would be there grinding, doing spreadsheets. And How did you find Centennial? I was actually, I was actually on a, a, very coincidentally, I was on a elevator one day and I was listening to two to ladies speak that turned out to be a headhunter. And they, they said, oh, we just got this assignment and I'm looking for this really aggressive young guy. And I said, ladies, I don't mean to interrupt, but, you know, I'm your guy. I'm that guy. I, I would like a shot at this job. They got me an interview. I got the job. And I worked with Charlie Nelson, David Ross. I mean, a number of number of people came out of that infrastructure. I also, John, when I was coming home in the summer, I was working construction. And I really liked I really liked seeing that finished product. I liked watching it go through iterations and, you know, come to a I think I think my first brick job was up at Shady Grove Station, and that was farmland. That was that was considered way out back then. Now it's not, but I really I worked with both the construction and the development arms of Centennial, and I really got to see the entire development process soup to nuts. And you know we were pretty dominant on the toll road. I mean Sunrise Tech Park, Executive Commerce Park, Summit One and Two. I mean we really peaked. And his development team, they did, a, they did a nice job, and we had a nice footprint out there. So, I was at the Saul Company. did a lot of financings for uh, Pete and his team. Yes. You probably underwrote a few deals for us. So. Yeah. Did you deal with Ray Todd? Yes. And Peter Siri, And, you know, we had a, we had a good team, and it was, it was good. I think when I saw the 86 tax law coming in, I, I didn't know how limited partnerships were kind of going to make it. And that was going to re kind of reframe how you utilize capital markets. Exactly. And so that led me to, to leave Centennial and, and progress to Acacia. So that was what, about 86, 87? That was 86, 87. Yep. Right in that window. Okay. And so then you joined Acacia Life. Talk about that transition going from an entrepreneurial development company into an institutional investor. That was, that took some adjustment to be honest with you. Cause I was, you know, I was somebody that, you know, Pete was like, I mean, you, you, you walked the proposal. You didn't use FedEx. I mean, it was, you know, we did everything to, to 
we've looked at every financial aspect of everything we did at Centennial. At Acacia, you know, I never really, I sat, my, my desk was next to a group of actuaries. So that was a far cry from a developer in Northern Virginia. Completely different. Completely different. And, but my time at Acacia, you know, by the time I was in my mid to late 20s, I was the head of the real estate department. And I got to do debt. I got to do equity. I was in charge of national leasing. I mean, Acacia had 29 offices around the country. How did that job come to you? I mean, what, what, what made you want to go there? I mean, what, what brought you there? That was, for me, I was looking for, at that time, you know, I thought an industry was going to go through consolidation. And I really, really wanted to try M&A. Okay. I, was, I was in grad school at night. Oh, I, see. I had a double concentration. I was working on a double concentration in economics and finance for my MBA. Right. And I really said, you know, let's let's put the pen to paper here and see how this how this stuff works. And Acacia was they had bought Acacia Federal Savings Bank. They bought the Calvert Group. Right. And in, right. in Bethesda. I mean, right. they were they were doing a lot of it. And I was like, okay, I like real estate, but this looks pretty exciting too. Mm-hmm. Well, Black Monday comes along. You know, and everybody, uh, a lot of my my peers and and people above me got summarily dismissed. And I I stood in line basically waiting to get fired, and at Acacia. And when it came to me, you know, the chairman of the company, the ex chairman, had come back, and he got up, took a break, and I'm standing there, my teeth are chattering, and I'm like, gosh, I'm going to get fired. And he comes back, opens up my personnel file. He says, I see you've got real estate experience. You're in charge of real estate now, Paul. We've got X defaulted loans. We've got this. We've got this. Clean it up. Go. And so I went and played very hard. And I made board presentations. And again, I told you, you know, my board, you know, Jim Clark, Vince Burke, Mandy Orsman. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was. DC's finest. And you learned a lot. I, I learned a lot. And to be in my 20s in a board setting was was good for me. And not, now I've been in boardrooms, including, you know, being chairman of this company 35 years now. And what I've learned about boards are, you know, you can have a lot of successes there, but you're going to take your lumps. If you, mm-hmm. do, if you don't, there's something wrong with your board. I mean, because, you know, they're I, there to ask questions. They're there to ask questions. They're there to have that critical eye. And, you know, I, I got some critical eyes, John. Let's say it that way. Sure. I, when I look back at my time at Acacia, you know, everybody always says, you know, what was your, that's where I spent the most time in my career was at Acacia. Everybody says, what was your best time there? And I said, it was, you know, forming that vent, joint venture with Boston Properties and Ray and Bob. And, you know, we, we had a heck of a team. And we did some great things and, you know, I'll, I'll go into it in more detail later, but, you know, Ray was just, just one of those people that can elevate everyone's game around him. Of course. And just a, just a fabulous, wonderful partner. Mort and Ed came down, met our board. We were down, you'll like this. We were down to three finalists, Crow, Hines, and Boston Properties. Crow came in and they brought uh, DIHC, a financing company, with them. Uh, they said, okay, we've got all the money raised. And uh, Don Williams, you know, came in and did the pitch. That was, that was from 8 to 10, 10 through lunch. Gerald Hines came in 
Gerald himself. Gerald himself came in with a food with a taste tester, and he actually brought a light bulb. Now the bulb we all and he said, "This is the future," you know. And our it was I think that was a lot for our board. They were just like, "Look, we're just trying to develop something." But he was ten steps down the road, right? He loved really pressing the envelope, and then Mort and Ed came in. And, you know, it was Mort, Ed, Ray, Bob, and uh, Mitch Norville. And they just, you know, they just gave an outstanding pitch. And so you had three, probably the, those are the, at that time, probably the three biggest office development companies in the world. Yes. And 29 interviewing the <laughs> wow. three of them and, and picking them out. And, and at the end of the day, we went with, we went with the Bob and Ray show and, uh, you know, Ray and I have been friends ever since, but that was, you know, that, that really, for me, Ray was kind of a game changer in my career because he really got me to think bigger, think broader. When we started talking about what tenants we wanted to go after well, you know, we're going to go after there's a security and exchange commissions looking for our headquarters. It's going to be right here. I mean, he was adamant about it. And I, I just was, you know, you talk about influential or inspirational or however you want to say it, but Ray was, uh, Ray was it for me. And he, he's always been a, a great friend and very generous with his time. And just some of them, someone I've, you know, emulated from the day I've met him. So how did you transition from from Acacia then? Uh, you went on to lend lease after that. So what, yeah. So that? the the good news, bad news at Acacia is we were very successful in the real estate department. But as you you know, life companies, you hit that ten percent mark, and you're done. And so the money was invested, the debt was out there. I mean, I had basically hit our hit our ceilings, and then the job got a little bit more autopilot. And management. management and that really i was i was too young i was you know my my low 30s at that mm -hmm. time so the opportunity for lend lease i think everybody in this town knew it as equitable or ere yarmouth when right. i joined that opportunity came up because they were looking for a local real estate i had managed a portfolio they were very clear that this was a complete rebuild situation they wanted to rebrand they wanted a new team in-house, everything. Who's the fellow at, at Equitable? Larry Dentler. Dentler. Was he your predecessor then? Was that a couple times before? I think Larry Larry was the Equitable predecessor. I don't right. know if he made it through the entire duration of ERE Yarmouth. Right. But, you know, Equitable was, you know, they everybody's like, okay, Equitable car. And it was just like, well, right. you know, there's other, there's, other, there's other fields to plow here, folks. And they... You know, they bought a platform to the table that was probably being, we were the, when I took over the DC office, we were 13th out of 13th in the country. And so we obviously needed to make some changes. And mm -hmm. so we did. Uh, make, I think we, I think we kept two asset managers out of the whole group and uh, everybody else went and rebuilt the team, you know, rebranded, got the name out. I had multiple separate accounts to choose from. And we were under allocated in DC because the team wasn't really putting the capital work. So it was really a, a very unique job. And we were, John, remember, like Lendlease was the largest real estate investment advisor in the world. Australian. Yeah. Australian company, but right. we had 52 billion under management, oh. which was a big number back then. Right. Not so, not so big now. And 
it was really the platform that that I had always hoped for. And, you know, all of a sudden we were big in D.C. And, you know, this office climbed up the ladder. Through acquisitions? Acquisitions, jet, everything. We did, we, I mean, this is, you know, relationship, relationship, relationship. We financed Embarcadero out of the D.C. office. Really? Okay. Yeah. Thanks to Ray and Mort. Oh, and okay. they had just bought it. And right. uh, so I worked, I collaborated with our San Francisco office, but it was the DC office that had the relationship, you know, with Boston. For Property. listeners, this is downtown San, San Francisco's prime assets at the time. Yes, correct. Yeah. Correct. But Len Lease, you know, the, the, the incredible thing about Len Lease was it got so big, it, it just lost its way. I mean, now think about this. I, I came to Erie Yarmouth. I, I, Maybe there was 500 people, maybe here here, in the United States. Oh, in the United States. In the United States, across the U.S., right? Then they go on a buying spree. They buy Boston Financial, big multifamily operator, you know, took that on. Bovis Construction, the largest construction company in Europe. And then I think if they didn't, if we didn't buy them, they were going under, but uh, Ambresco. Who, owned oh, also, right. who also owned HFF. Right. And so we had to have a multifamily company. We had to have a dedicated oh capital God. markets group, right. a dedicated construction company. Right. It really should be a case study. And then we brought in a CEO that didn't like real estate. And so, and that didn't even last 12 months. So Len Lease really, for me, it really had a profound impact on me because I'm at this kind of boutique company, but we went from 500 to 15,000, right? Mm -hmm. And it lost its, I think it lost its way. It tried to be too much to too many people, Mm -hmm. okay? And as a result, you know, it imploded. And, you know, pieces of the business got sold off. Prime Property Fund bought, you know, got bought by Morgan Stanley. I mean, it really, it got taken apart in pieces. It was tough to watch. But that was that was very hard for me to see a company that successful just get, you know. Sometimes your best lessons are things that are the most disastrous thing that's around you. Sometimes it was it was a great lesson, John, for me. In I mean, trying to blend four separate cultures was nearly impossible, especially when you all weren't located in the same area. You know, I'm sitting there on a video call with someone in Sydney trying to tell them how I want to do business. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're looking at their watch cause they want to go home and it's 8am or something. It was just, right. it was, it was very tough. But at the end of the day, I got to work with some phenomenal people at Len Lease and, and, he, and some of the guys I work with are CEOs of publicly traded REITs now. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it had a profound impact on me watching that kind of get taken apart because I love the company. I love the people I work with, but you know, our, some of our separate accounts are like, Hey, you guys, you know, where's the personal business anymore? It's, it's feeling like a number here and had to hit numbers, had to hit margins because they had spent so much on all these businesses. So well, it's interesting. There's an analogy there at one point, similar to when you joined this company, to some extent. Yes, there is. Sounds like there it. is. You can't yeah. be, you can't be good at everything, John. Right. You can't. And that that kind of proves itself time and time again. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So then Freddie Mac. So what how did that transition occur? 
I I really I was looking for a change. Lendlease was imploding. The lure to Freddie was you know it's a big change. It's a huge change. <laughs> another another huge change. And not only was it you know just it wasn't just in title only. It was how you conduct a business. Lendlease really you know I I. It hurt to kind of say goodbye, but Freddie had what I thought was an incredible opportunity. They wanted to start an equity fund, but they said, okay, we're going to build up to that, but you should come in here. You know, real estate, you know, underwriting, you were doing a lot of debt for equitable as a separate account. You'll be chief credit officer of the multifamily group. So I took over as chief, chief credit officer. I will tell you the, the sheer numbers at Freddie Mac of originations were staggering. And the chief credit officer is chair of investment committee. Were you in the multifamily division? I was in the multifamily division. Right. And later I took over, I took over structured finance and affordable housing right. also. But you know, it was nothing for Freddie. You like, okay, well, you know, and I, I had under my, you know, all of credit, the bigger deals, and then CMBS. And, you know, my my target would be, you know, 15 to 20 billion a year. Did you work for Adrian Corbier? I worked for Adrian Corbier. Adrian hired me and was a, was a great guy. And he knew he was taking a chance on me, you know, because I, I had such a, you know, uh, steep equity background. Mm-hmm. But he says, look, Paul, you can do this. But, you know, you're going to have to be, and I hated the name, he goes, but at Freddie Mac, you're Dr. No. And you need to be Dr. No. And so again, back to the underwriting discipline. And there were deals I turned down at investment committee and came back and reworked them. And but everybody at Freddie, what I liked about it, everybody was rowing in the same direction. I mean, you know, we had capital to get out. We competed. It was a head-on competition. There was no other market but Fannie Mae. You know, we really competed head to head with Fannie. And it was it was a healthy, it was a healthy competition. But just again, the you know, going and putting out 500 million for a year at, at Lend Lease to, well, I got to do, you know, I mean, one deal that I did with the head of structured finance at the time, Van Verick, that deal with City was 6.2 billion. Yeah. One deal. And that was, you know, early 2000s. That's a big portfolio. That's a big portfolio. So, but I learned so much at Freddie, and it was really, I tell people, it was like getting your PhD in finance. Uh, yeah, what well, you I was get a mortgage banker at that time, and of course, I was we were selling loans to Fannie, to Fannie and Freddie. Not as much Fannie because we weren't. We decided not to take the risk of becoming a delegated underwriting. The dust, dust lender. But so we understood that, and that's the big difference between Fannie, in the multifamily space between the two companies because Freddie would take a hundred percent risk, correct, on their deals. So you had to be particularly picky. Because Fannie could be afford to be a little bit more aggressive because they didn't take as much risk on the deals they invested in. Not right? the first position. Yeah, exactly. So risk perspective. It was different. It was a different risk perspective. And my pricing team, one of the one of the gentlemen I got to work with actually, you know, was the CEO. He recently stepped. But I had I got to work with an exceptional credit team. Mm-hmm. And they were I I learned probably more at that job just in terms about underwriting credit and what to look for and you know how developers were gaming the system. But again, a great experience. Looking at your 
fellow CEOs out there in REITs, probably very few that have the underwriting discipline that you had from that experience, I'm guessing. You know, it was just, yeah, there are a few, you know, I, I someone like Don, Don was a CFO, right, right, before. And right. so everybody's got their own arrow in the quiver, right? And, sure. but yeah, credit is, credit is, is big to me. Yeah. So then, then you moved on to PMC. So what, what, why that transition? What happened there? I, I really missed being on the equity side and, and, you know, Adrian knew that the, the folks I worked with or, you know, I would be at our seller servicer conferences mm-hmm. and their guys would come up to me, or Brian from CBRE would come up to me and he'd be like, you're like the wolf in sheep's clothing. What are you doing here? <laughs> uh, he goes, I can tell you're, I can tell you're a deal guy. You're almost jumping across the table when we're talking about deals. And, you know, I had, I had just had my, my first son and it was time, you know, it was time to make the move. So PNC was looking for a chief transaction officer, chief investment officer, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. And that opportunity came. It was in the Taft-Hartley space. AFL-CIO. Yeah, AFL-CIO, Building Investment Trust. It was in the Taft-Hartley space. And that wasn't just as much, you know, that it wasn't just making the best capital allocation decisions. That was also about job creation. You know, they they really wanted that engine Mm -hmm. to fuel, to, you know, fuel job creation for the union members. So. So you were out. Looking at deals nationally, then? Nationally, or? yes. Okay. Nationally, we did deals, Seattle, right-to-work states. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was it was challenging in uh, non-union markets. South Carolina it was kind of hard <laughs> to do deals there. Yeah, we weren't, we weren't putting a lot of shovels in the ground. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Boston, New York, yeah. Philadelphia, Washington, Correct. San Francisco, and wherever Correct. unions were. Prevalent, yes. Pretty much. So what, what volume or what, what, what did you all do while you were there? And what, what kind of activities mostly? We did both, both acquisitions and, and JVs. Yeah. And the acquisitions were really you know, predicated on keeping the boat floating uh, right. for current income. And then the development JVs, you know, we were the, the capital. And where there were union, where there were union opportunities, mm-hmm. you know, we would work with the local jurisdictions to affect you know, the best possible financial terms. So did you have to engineer the job such that, you know, all the union people were effectively worked on the job? And because there was a little politics in that, wasn't there? There is, but we had a, we had a group called the Investment Trust Corporation that was kind of, they did the buffer. We really were in charge of underwriting the deal, providing the capital, you know, and and working with the partnerships or the owner operators. Mm -hmm. So how long were you there? I was there three years and I got a phone call just from an executive search firm that just said, Paul, and I had known this firm for a while and mm-hmm. sure, pretty prominent name. And they said, hey, you know, have you ever heard of Rockefeller? And I was like, well, who hasn't? Who hasn't? Exactly. <laughs> and they said, look, they're looking for, they're looking for a, a deal guy. They want, they want to get into the advisory business and they want somebody that can you know, that has a national experience that can originate transactions for them around the country. And, you know, I gave me a resume. They'd like to talk to you. What was the infrastructure of the Rockefeller Group at that time? It was primarily, well, first off, you know, a lot of people really didn't know this. I mean, you know, Rockefeller is 100% owned by Mitsubishi Corporation. 
and the family, for whatever reason, defaulted on the loan at Rock Center. You know, the, how long ago was that? I would say that was in the nineties. Okay. And so, you know, my the, the half the folks that interviewed me were American, and the other half were Japanese. So I I got the job offer, and they were like, "Great! All you have to do is move to New York." And you and I are fortunate enough to live a couple blocks from each other. And I like K-Town. And, right. you know, my son, my once, my oldest had, was born with complex congenital heart defects. We like the doctors here. We were very comfortable. Children's was here. You know, CHOP was right up the road. Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And so I just, I was like, I'm not your guy. I'm sorry. I am your guy, but I'm not your guy. I don't right. want to move my family to, to Midtown. And that was that. And so that cooled off for about two or three weeks. And they called back and they said, two days a week. I was like, you got it. So I used to get up, you know, my wife, my wife, Roseanne was none too happy. But like Sunday night, I'd be, be in bed by nine o'clock. Mm -hmm. And I was up at three, train. Three, three thirty in the morning, take the six o'clock cell out of uh, BWI. At my desk by nine, mm -hmm. you know, right on Sixth Avenue there between 48th and 49th. At my our building was Caddy Quarter to Radio City, right there, 1221. I'm surprised you're not you weren't at Rock Center, your office. We didn't own it. Oh, okay. Remember, we the kids That's had, right. had they lost sold it. it. They sold it, and so I believe that was Tishman. Tishman. Yep. Yeah. So, right. but it, interesting story, John. You mentioned, you know, I mentioned Embarcadero, Embarcadero, you know, was, I mean, if you look at 1210, there. Well, during this job, I mean, it was fascinating to just watch the 50-yard line move, you know, right down the center because it was pretty clear. I mean, we bought 50 Beale for, for our fund. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there and it's like, wow, Mission seems like the place it's going to be. Not San Francisco change. Yeah, not market. Like it, it just, you literally saw it swinging away from the financial district and going the other way. Well, that was the tech. Yeah, the absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Boston Properties was right on it. it. Yeah. But I loved Rockefeller. You know, my, I had an office in New York. I had an office here, opened an office for Rockefeller at 1700 Penn. And my role was not just being a deal person. I would go to Asia and raise capital. And we raised a billion dollars. And did you learn I, Japanese? I, <laughs> I studied Japanese. Oh, you did? I did. And it was just to, not to speak in as much, but to know what people were saying. And I, you know, got to work with my Japanese colleague who was here, Junji Inagawa. And we're still, we still correspond today and we still remain in touch. And, you know, probably we would have gotten together sooner if it wasn't for COVID. But, you know, Junji was just one of the most outstanding business partners I ever had. His nickname in, in Tokyo was uh, 7-Eleven because <laughs> he was always grinding 24-7 and you could always get a deal done. Well, and 
irony, ironically, I think 7-Eleven is owned by a Japanese company, if I'm not mistaken. Corporation. I'm at a loss right now. But Junji was just, I couldn't have asked for a better business partner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when things were, were going down and like, hey, we need more capital, you know, because the money went to Mitsubishi. Junji kind of went to the mat. And he's the one that got the first deal button, got the ball across the finish line. And I went to, you know, I went to Tokyo, but Junji and I went to Seoul, obviously Tokyo, uh, and we raised capital from all the, the big investors and put it to work back here. Travel was a grind, but I absolutely loved the job. Experiencing a new culture was was just, you know, a, a dream for did me. Did you hire a team here in Washington? I did hire a team here, and we were mainly focused on acquisitions. And it was actually one of my my former colleagues at Rockefeller. I recruited him here, Andrew Leahy who's now our head of investments. And it was really, it was an extraordinary experience and I did well there. And I think that, you know, the Japanese had bigger aspirations for me in terms of the hierarchy at Rockefeller. And then this, this opportunity came up. So did Headhunter reach out to you on this one too as well? A Headhunter reached out to me on this one. And the first time, it wasn't something that I was really just the the complexities associated with RIT in the multiple asset classes. You know, I pulled some investors and they were, you know, not not very forthcoming, but just, you know, they said that that's a bad, that you have to completely rebuild that place. And, you know, I, I, I think that I like, you know, when I look at me and I look at the challenges that I like, I mean, you know, what are you looking for in a job? You're looking for personal growth, professional growth. But for me, I like building something or fixing something. That's what mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm good at. I'm not, I'm not real good at what you termed earlier, just being in management and being on autopilot. I, I, that's not really, that's not the place Keep for the me. engine running. Yeah. It, it's just make sure it, like my, my one of my former colleagues used to say, Paulie, time to make the donuts. You know, that's not a, that's not really something that I, I couldn't picture myself being excited getting out of bed every morning. But when I looked at this and, you know, I talked to, you know, Ray and other folks about it. And there were mixed mixed views on wh- whether or not if, if I was fortunate enough to get offered the job. But I, I thought it was fixable. I thought it could be rebuilt. And I just wanted research. I wanted the capital allocations to be fundamentally based. I wasn't afraid, you know, I'd never been a CEO of a publicly traded company before, but I wasn't afraid to tackle things that I knew I had to, to be successful in the job. And this really offered me that. I was kind of getting the same tugs from Rockefeller at the same time. And there you had to move to New York and this you didn't. And, you know, I ended up, I ended up taking the, the red job. Yep. So you were you approached to take it on. Perhaps expand on the changes you implemented in the first couple of years of your tenure to begin pivoting the company strategy. It appears it started by shedding the industrial and medical office portfolios. Ironically, I saw a video of your predecessor, Skip McKenzie, lauding the acquisition medical office building three years prior to your arrival. How did that pit strategy pivot evolve? Well, let's let's start with the changes we had to make. The first thing, and the board was you know very supportive. The first thing, from, I think one of my first hires was research, like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. And Grant Grant was kind enough to join us and and kind of jumped right in the swimming pool. And we said, okay, you know, 
this triage process we're talking about, where's the growth? You know, let's start focusing on that. And then I really, you know, operationally, I really needed a change agent. And so lo and behold, uh, Mr. Baki and I met, Tom turned me down. He had been at Equity Office. Yeah, he'd been at EOP, he'd been at Blackstone. He was at Cushman at the time when mm-hmm. I was talking with him and he turned me down. And, you know, I, I tried to duke it out a little bit more, but I really needed a change agent. And I knew if you spent five minutes with Tom, you know, he'll roll up his sleeves and go after it. And so I went back to him. You know, some would say begging was involved, but <laughs> I wouldn't. I think Tom just wanted to like, he, he wanted to assess the situation like Tom. He's very methodical before he goes into something. And But Tom came on as COO. And, you know, in 14, and we immediately started making changes in the portfolio. And we started, you know, I mean, if I look back now, John, I think, you know, 100% of the C-suite was turned over, 80 to 90% of the management team was turned over, probably the employee base, you know, at least 70%. And how long did that take? Two years? Two years, yeah. I'd say we were... We had made the, the most of the substantive changes by 15. Steve Riffy joined us in 15 as the CFO. Steve came from uh, Copt. I know that Tom Regnell was here, I think, probably when you joined. Tom, Tom was here when I joined, yes. And Tom left, I want to say, you know, a year to a year and a half in, into my tenure. But we've, you know, as far as the asset classes before I got here, I can't really speak to, you know, and I, I, I think that's probably the best way to, to leave that. I can't speak to what they did. Um, but I can, you know, when I looked at the medical office portfolio that was, by the way, it was under contract, you know, to Harrison Street by the time. So I just really had to get the deal closed. But okay. you had, you had, I mean, medical office, I, I view as really like a Nova campus proximate and stuff. This was uh, a lot of it was suburban office with doctors in it at above market rents. So I think the decision was a wise one to mm-hmm. monetize that. But we we immediately, as I said, started implementing the research. And you know, you ask what what made you pivot, right? And when we looked at Class B, especially downtown, I looked at the assets that we had, which were, you know, were clearly B assets. It was evident that Class B was going to be go through a almost a de-evolution is how I would cause it. And there was st- the stock was getting rapidly depleted, depleted. People were buying it up, putting up glass boxes. I, I facetiously once called them fake A's because, yeah, great, they had glass skin, but they still had you know, eight-foot ceiling heights, poor column spacing. Some of, the fo- some of the glass boxes they didn't even redo the systems, the elevators. So, you know, and they, but they wanted 20 bucks more face rents. So it was obvious for that. And we were really witnessing, and, you know, DC was a, a mainstay in people's portfolio because, you know, it was like clipping a coupon. Well, I, I own property in Washington, DC. It's always going to perform. It'll be there in good times and bad times. Well, guess what? Historically, it did. It did. Not to, until this cycle. Right. Okay. And, we saw, I'd say, John, growth in the wrong type of metrics. We, uh, we saw TIs. I think when I got here, there were 75 bucks a foot. You know, last year, there were 150 a foot. Oh. Free rent, you know, was doubling. Uh, vacancy. I mean, we're almost 20% downtown. 
a bad year for us was 9%. And tiered in, in quality, Class A was probably single digit. Yes. B was probably 25 or 30. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and, and running away from us. Okay. Then COVID hits. Right. And another you know, body blow to the asset class. And so for us, you know, the, the fact pattern was there, John. Sure. And we, we went to our board. And, and again, I want to touch on retail too. For retail for me, and you've, you've been here a while, retail, if, you know, good retail doesn't trade a whole lot in this region. It yeah. shouldn't. It should. The highest per square foot sales probably in the nation as far as a city in yeah. retail. So... If you can't scale the business, why are you in it? That was my conclusion. Right. And, you know, we, we probably had some credit issues with a couple of our tenants, you know, particularly like Randolph and Montrose. Sure. Some of the folks in there. So so let's park those two over here and then let's look at multifamily. You know, and when we looked at multifamily, significant demand drivers, stronger rent growth mm-hmm. for us you know, who would like to pay dividends and actually want to increase lower recurring CapEx. So it goes right to AFFO. More consistent returns. And then I look at the Wash Re business profile, the Wash Re credit profile, it improves. So you ask what really made us pivot. It was, I'd, I'd offer you those uh, six factors. And to me, the decision was obvious, but obvious, but very painful. Getting there. Getting there was tough. And I have to tell you, I give all the credit to this board, this current board. It took a lot of will to have that deep breath and said, okay, we're going to sell half the company. But they, you know, I'll, I'll stop for a second here, John. And, and I hope you you take this these words for what they're worth. I, I, I truly believe Lots of people know the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. The question is, do they have the managerial courage to do it? Mm-hmm. And I look at our board and they were right there. They knew that there was going to be dilution, you know, but I said, this is, it's a bumpy path to get there. But when you come out the other side and you're a multifamily company, you know, I've never not had headwinds since I took this job. Right. This year. I've got tailwinds heading into 22 and 23 is going to be better and 24 is going to be better than that. But I haven't had that my entire time here. It's kind of, you know, Riffy and I were pinching ourselves the other day in a meeting, just like, wow, we don't have, you know, a hundred thousand square foot tenant blown out. And, you know, it's going to be expensive and a drain on the cash flow and disruptive and create volatility. And so it really, to me, the decision and to, to the management team here, I think the decision was, was this is what we have to do, and this is why we do it. So, but it was it wasn't one great leap. It was a lot of steps along the way. So you had to think. So how do we, you know, how do we chart the course here of getting to where we were to where we are, you know, over this time? Did we did we do it one 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 asset at a time? Do we look at portfolio sales? How do we how do we do all this and how do we do it in the right way that, that doesn't spill the, the income stream too quickly because obviously as, a, as managing as a REIT, the goal is to maximize your dividends as, as much as possible for your shareholders. Sure. So 
how do you do that uh, when you're disrupting? And and I, I think when we talked earlier, um, I said to myself, I'm not an analyst, so I don't study REITs like they do, but I haven't heard of an REIT that's gone through the change, the dram- as dramatic a change as your company has over the last eight years. And maybe there's maybe that's one or two other examples, but I don't know if there are any. I'd say our analysts tell us that we're one of three that have kind of come out the other side. And by the way, we're not done yet. You yeah. even have one asset that you had currently that you had when you when you uh, joined the company? Sure, in the multifamily space. You, you still have we, a few. We, we still have a few. I would say that during the time, you know, our, our goal, and we, we knew we had to shift gears, but during that time, we still de-risked the portfolio and cleaned up the balance sheet, mm-hmm. okay? And, and quite frankly, you know, you're sitting there juggling all these balls on a high wire on a unicycle wearing a tutu <laughs> and, you know, with the dancing bear and, and you're sitting there saying, okay, I've got to keep the rating agencies happy too. Right. And I, right. I give all the credit to Steve Riffey and his team. I mean, he's just done an outstanding job balancing it. We have a term around here called threading the needle, but, but it's been, it's been hard. It has not been without uh, a lot of sleepless nights, but at the end of the day, you know, let, let's go back to that, that question you asked, do it in a one-off fashion or do it in the bulk? Mm-hmm. We actually talked to even some of our investors about that. I talked to some of our bankers about that because we had done one-off sales, mm-hmm. okay? And I, I can say this categorically across the board. Everybody was giving me the call me when it's over speech. That's when I'll buy your stock. I don't want to sit here and die a thousand cuts. Just call me when it's over, okay? And that was universal. So... For us, when I look at the bulk sales that, that we just affected, number one, it really accelerated Wash REIT's transformation mm-hmm. into a multifamily REIT operating in D.C. And when we announced the sale, we also said we're going to expand the geographic footprint. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a double whammy. It was a lot for our investors to swallow. Second, it really provided us with the financial flexibility because we were basically getting back a billion dollars to really prudently invest in those southeast regions that we have been studying for about four years this wasn't this wasn't willy-nilly like hey let's go invest in georgia or let's go invest in the carolinas grant montgomery you know we joke around we like to say look we looked at all the markets from boston to austin and where we really followed the job trends and the migration trends and where they were going and grant you know i'll get into it a little bit further later but you know, Grant really put together a predictive analytic model, proprietary predictive analytics model. And that really, you know, helped us target the, the markets, the submarkets, even at the asset level. It significantly, John, to get to your point, it significantly reset our earnings growth profile. It wasn't one step forward, two steps back anymore. It was growth in the multifamily space. Sure. And it also with that move to the South, enhanced our geographic diversification. So portfolio management 101, yes. right? It helped us, remember that line I used at the beginning, simplify the story? Mm-hmm. Really helped us become a monoline REIT that simplified the story. And it, it was a business model that we believe will provide sustainable growth for our investors. It improved, it, with, without question, it improved our cash flow characteristics, lower volatility, low CapEx, greater growth going forward. That's why investors invest in REITs. 
And finally, you know, we reduced the net leverage to the mid five times range, which is where you need to be. The balance sheet's cleaned up. This organization has no secured debt. Okay. Again, thank tip of the hat well, to Steve Riffey and his team. It's interesting you say that because when I first heard RIT in the marketplace, the one thing I was told, and because I, oh, well, I'm in mortgage banking, I need to go talk to them. <laughs> Everyone said, uh-uh. They have zero leverage, zero. They have no debt whatsoever. I said, what? How can a company operate with no debt in the public space? Well, we have debt, you know, obviously, but at the, at the corporate level, but we have no secured debt at the property level. Yeah. And it, it, it really just, you, you know, you go back on the bulk versus the one-off. When you look at those, what it did for us, and it, it kind of took a zero to 60. And it, it, you know, the, the challenge is, and I look at the office space, look, I'm somebody, you know, I, I've cut my teeth on a lot of these buildings downtown here. I'm rooting for it. Nobody, I mean, I'm rooting as hard as Ray Ritchie is because I, I think it's good for downtown. I think it's good for the street retail. We need people back downtown. But, you know, the B space, we were kind of looking yeah. like, wow, it's 25, 26. And uh, as you know, if you're not growing in our space, you're dying. You're dying. And we didn't have that. So so a lot of REITs do development as well as acquisitions. Has that thought process crossed your mind at all as far as doing development to kind of maybe enhance yields a little bit and have to, to maybe have a little newer product than having to buy at full retail? Uh, price, you know, just to have a balance in the portfolio a little bit. Is that kind of thought process? So we actually, we did our first development, wash breed development with no JV. We delivered it. Unfortunately, it delivered right into the teeth of the pandemic in March of 2020. Okay. Or the first quarter of 2020, but it's called Trove. It's okay. a 401 uh, unit lead certified on Columbia Pike. The beauty of that, John, is we had bought a property in 15 called the Wellington that had an enormous parking lot next to it. We subdivided, uh, or we're subdividing the asset, and we constructed the Trove Texas Donut, and the, it is just an outstanding property, and we had a, had a great development team that, that we did it in-house. And I like to look at Trove as kind of, that's that's kind of one of the things that is the new wash REIT is, yeah, we, we will do development. We've got a couple other assets, Riverside, which we bought in 16, you know, that was 1,200 and, you know, we can add it now another 767 units to that. And we're going to be costing that out probably right now. Where is that now? That's in Alexandria. Okay. And uh -huh. so that's an asset, again, that our, with our internal development expertise that we'll do. We have, I, I personally think we have opportunities already embedded in our portfolio for densification. But we also have a, a very good acquisitions team. Sure. And the challenge with development for a company our size, for a small cap read, is it really doesn't start paying dividends for two to three years. And, you know, if you're going to tie up a couple hundred million, you know, your investors like to see uh, a little bit more development. We're not Avalon Bay. It's not going to be 20% of our portfolio is going to be development right now. we got to crawl before we walk in this space. And so current income is just as important to us. Right. So 
your research drove, drove you to the Carolinas and, uh, and Georgia. I mean, you look at the fastest growing states in the, in the Union and you look at Texas and Florida. I mean, were those markets you looked at down there as well? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about research for a second. So, research is really the it's it's the engine here at WashRead. It propels our growth, and it helps us with our market selection, our submarket selection, our assets. It really helps us create our asset strategy. Is it going to be a renovation strategy all the way through dispositions? It really informs us about the services and the amenities we want to offer. Some submarkets you don't need X Y Z amenity. Others you do, and and quite frankly, you know, as we plan to bring management in house here at the end of this year, its research has really informed us on how we want that infrastructure to look. So we're we're in the throes of it right now. I will tell you, sitting in Washington D.C., what did we what did we learn from the research? The deepest demand is in mid market rents, and we have a Class B portfolio here that's performed very well and did very well during the downturn. Affordability is still going to be, you know, a pressing issue for that mid-market renter and at varying price points across the spectrum. But we like playing in that space. We like playing that affordability gap. And I think you've heard us use that term sometime in the past. We also have a philosophy as we go south that rents can be consistently grown. You know, you're not touching the brand new product price points. And as long as the mid-market renters, the wage growth is keeping up. We think we're going to be be successful, you know, in, in growing rents in those mid-market spaces. So we've we've taken our DC knowledge of demand, supply, and affordability, and we've incorporated that into our capital allocation criteria as we move south. So, Paul, stepping back to look at your career arc, there were some milestones you experienced in the past that gave you a fortitude to make such bold moves. Arguably, Wash Reed's strategic changes were the most dramatic of any read over their tenure. How do the analysts view your moves, and where did you marshal your support? Good question. <laughs> I've had my—I'd say I've had my moments where I've had to break from the pack in terms of our philosophy on on changing out the company, and and I'd say I I might have rocked the boat a bit in my past trying to make make uh, changes and. I have to tell you, John, I'm just comfortable doing that. I'm somebody that would you know, rather rock the boat than, than watch it sink. We've all had moments in, in our career where we've had to make unpopular decisions. I know you have, and I've talked to a number of the leaders in Washington here. I've had, I've had to pivot and make changes, and they've been you know, gut-wrenching from a human capital standpoint. But we, we made some changes, but I, I think it was the right call for us. The analysts, their job is to be skeptical, right? And their job is to have that critical eye. But I have to tell you, with maybe one exception, I've found the analysts that cover Wash Reed to be pretty fair and balanced. And, you know, I've talked to them, communicated what the strategy was, communicated what the vision was, the duration it would take to get executed. And I think they've been, you know, very fair with, with us. A couple times, they, you know, a couple of them have jumped the gun a little bit on something where they didn't perhaps have the whole picture and they were critical, but I'm okay with that. You have to, if you, you know, you've talked to Don, you've talked to other folks, if you don't have a thick skin, this probably isn't the, 
the place the place for you. But again, I, I, I go back to where did I get this? It starts at the top. It starts with the new wash read board. They knew that we had to make changes. And I had some some people on the board that were, you know, part of the old administration, but they saw the need for change. And while I don't think it was an easy decision for anybody, you know, it never is to sell half the company and have that type of impact on your your people. I mean, your best assets walk out the door every night, right? And having to sit down and have tough discussions that you're selling the office portfolio, you're selling the retail portfolio, and you know, people's jobs are going away or people's jobs are being outsourced. It's, what, what's it's tough. The, what's the ratio of ownership of the company vis-a-vis institutional versus, you know, retail? Yeah. It was probably down in the 70%. I'd say we're probably between 90 and 95% institutional now. Yeah, you, you've got, a, and my colleagues could probably talk about this better than I could, but I mean, you want the REIT mafia on your team. You want them in your stock. And, you know, they're, they're not the hedge funds that are in and out. They're, the, they're going long on you. And if they believe in the story, they, you know, you, some of the best portfolio managers that, you know, when I go to a neighbor, think, I mean, they, they'll tell you, like, we're investing in the management team. You know, it's your strategy. It's your job to execute, execute. You know, that's, you know, and, and me going to the analysts who are bringing investors to me and me outlining the strategy and God, that sounds kind of bumpy. I'm going to wait on the sidelines till you're done. Some other folks are, yeah, but the stock's down. If he's successful doing it, we're going to be get paying a larger multiple and a larger stock price. So we've really tried to convince investors, come on in, the water's fine. But I, I also think, John, I mean, you know the size of us. You have you know our history. I mean, we've, we've almost done $6 billion worth of deals here since I got here. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it, it, we've completely de-risked the portfolio. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot, of, a lot of positive things. We're not out the tunnel on the other side yet. That'll happen when we start onboarding our assets this year, but sure. that's going to be uh, that's going to be a big deal for us. Was there a time where you thought about going private, similar to what my friend Oliver Carr did several years ago with his sale to J.P. Morgan? Yes, there was. I, you know, when we sat down with the board, it was let's put all the options on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we fix this thing, and what do we want to do? And and obviously going private was was one of them the challenge you know is the diversification did i have and by the way we talked to all the players sure from the b's to the r's to the s's we you know we talked to a lot of folks somebody wanted the multifamily portfolio but didn't want retail somebody wanted office but didn't want multifamily the three asset classes we really need to needed to decouple the portfolio Mm-hmm. to affect something. And once we got to the conclusion that, okay, if we can sell office and if we can sell retail, hey, we're, we're pretty good at multifamily and, and we've picked well, we're developing, we can acquire well. Our value add strategies are you know, return on cost in the mid-teens. I mean, we've, we've done pretty well in multifamily and we've grown it measurably here mm-hmm. from when I got here to where it is now. So we're like, we can do this with the right team. We can do this. And, and we are doing it. We are executing right now. And I know a lot of people that probably haven't kept up with us don't understand 
all the changes that have taken place here. You do because you're, you're close to, uh, you know, you keep an eye on it, but it's been an enormous Herculean lift. But, you know, I think we're, when we onboard and take back in property management this year, and we'll talk about that, we're there. So my, my anecdote and knowledge of the current Class A apartment markets in the markets that you're in, those three areas that are the hottest competitively and are now generating very low cap rates, how are you distinguishing opportunities to buy and finding accretive situations in those markets, Charlotte, Atlanta, and Raleigh Durham? Sure. Well, we're chasing, you know, to just to reiterate the strategy, we're chasing A-minus assets that probably have been undermanaged. And the beauty of those A-minus assets is probably in five years, they're just going to augment our renovation pipeline and they'll be ready to be turned and, and moved up. We have a class B hold strategy that we've actually employed in Atlanta where we think, you know, there's been some tweaking around the edges. And then we have the value add B that, you know, we've done here and will do in Atlanta. We've acquired some under that premise. Where unit renovations, the, the room is there to run. There's enough runway in front of us. It is, without hesitation, it is very competitive, no doubt. And, but I keep going back. You're going to hear me say during this podcast, research probably about 50 times, mm-hmm. but research, research, research. We, we're not, we don't want to be everything to everyone. We like that B niche. We like that mid-market renter. We know the sub-markets where the demand is overpowering for that mid-market runner. And those are the markets we're really focusing on. Those are the assets. And we've been studying, you know, it's not like I told you. We've been looking at these markets for about four years. But we really, we didn't want to get over our skis and be in the process of selling office, selling retail while we're expanding. So we, I think we really took care of business. But you know, it's not just a mid-market renter too. It's some of the vintages that we're looking at, John, that people, you know, a lot of the institutions, they won't take on an 80s or 90s vintage or even a 70s vintage asset. We kind of follow the employment and the demographic trends. And if we like it, we know we can manage it because we've done it here. Mm-hmm. So there are several apartment REITs that have more diversified portfolios than your your company. How do you differentiate your company from Avalon Bay or Equity Residential? They those have been around longer and are larger in scale. And scale, without a doubt, scale has its benefits. But we're you know we've had some time to observe those REITs as we've been studying our geographic expansion. And strategically, when you look through the lens of like housing affordability, we're really focused on a niche that they're not. Okay. okay? And we're targeting an underserved niche. There is, without hesitation, an underproduction in, in that space. It's a national issue. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, that mid-market renter suffers across varying price points. There just isn't enough stock for them. Nobody's building Class B right now, right? I mean, with How land exactly uh you can't so there there's going to be this vicious circle that these renters really need stock and but they also deserve you know a what we want is for our residents is a premier residential experience and so we're looking at mid-income renters with price points that 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 really comprises the largest share of apartment demands right now is in that affordable space. That's where right. the, the band is the deepest right now. Mm-hmm. 
And so our niche, we think, just has unlimited growth opportunity. And our strategy is to focus on also, you know, high quality, we want high quality assets. We want to provide high, high quality services to these renters. But we also see this just long-term providing, providing solid growth, you know, for our investors. So it's not, it, it's, you know, one of, our, one of our close friends, you know, bigger isn't better, better is better. And, you know, we're not trying to be everything to every, everyone, John. We think that we've got a niche. We think we've proven we've, we can execute on the niche up here. And that we are right now doing the same thing down south. So what I'm hearing you say is you're looking at B assets, B, B plus, to, to maybe take to A with renovation. Most of those are in suburban lower density marketplaces, I think. Are you considering more urban type investments? And then you have to probably go into the more of the A class assets. So are you looking at that too, or are you going to stay with your more low rise, you know, less lower density type of investments? Again, you know, if you're following the income and you're following the employment growth, you know, we like some of the, some of the suburban yep. markets. And that's where we see job creation. That's also where that mid-market renter is most prevalent. You're not probably seeing that mid-market renter as not downtown. And they have different needs. And, and, you know, we'll get into it. But are you talking about the renter by choice or the renter by necessity? Because they both have very different needs. Certainly. So how will you now expand your services regarding property management or other verticals similar to you know, companies in this region like Rizzuto or, or most of Kepler? And what are your investors telling you regarding operating and managing your assets? So we are in the throes of a process, a uh, project called Project Reimagine right okay. now. And uh, we started it last year. And we are literally repositioning our infrastructure to internalize residential operations. Okay. We've notified Bazuto, we've notified Graystar, who are our two third-party operators. Mm-hmm. We will commence onboarding those assets and managing them ourselves starting in the fourth quarter of this year, okay. all the way through next summer, June of 2023. Mm-hmm. And that will be you know, onboarding 8,000 plus units. So another big lift. We like big lifts around here. Obviously, there's a theme here, John. But it's it's a it's a big project. But it's a it's a commitment to technology. It's a commitment to human capital. It's a commitment. It's a disciplined commitment to you know we want to play at that high level in the multifamily space as well. And you know when we we first talked about internalizing that, and our, our board asked the natural question: Why should we do it? What are the benefits? It's it's kind of uh, it's kind of nobody's gonna treat your children like you will, and uh, you know I drive up Connecticut Avenue every night like you did, and you know one of our third priority operators their signs bigger than our sign you wouldn't even know we own it and we we are branding's important branding is very important and that we're going we are going through a rebranding process right now. And we will come out the other side, probably around summertime, uh, sometime in, during the summer. But we plan on, you know, rebranding the organization, rebranding how people think of us. We're basically going from business to business to business to consumer. 
and we're being very thoughtful about it. We've done resident surveys. We've monitored our competitors through touring their assets, following their retention rates, looking at you know all sorts of all sorts of metrics. Social media, of course, we sure. can you can really dragnet a lot of information from. So we're doing our homework. I think we have one chance to do it right now. Rebuild this because our investors are probably going to give us one chance. But we've communicated to them that this is something we want to do. We'll do it efficiently, and and then we'll you know we'll grow the platform, scale the platform. Is there a linchpin to that strategy vis-a-vis the right person to kind of lead the, lead the property management operation? I mean, are you looking for that person to kind of be your leader there, or is this kind of more of a collaborative effort to just build a team? Well, we have a team, and you know we're we're in the we're in the human capital side right now, evaluating and literally we're evaluating every position here throughout the company. And ultimately, you know, yes, will there be, you know, one person on operations, one person on investments? Yes, he'll be there. We're not there yet, but yeah, I, you know, you'll see some, you'll see some changes in the infrastructure, but all positive changes, I think all accretive changes. I interviewed uh, uh, Julie Smith. Oh, there you go. That's right. A She's a wonderful back. lady. What she did for the Pazuto organization is beyond words almost of what she did. Absolutely. And built the reputation of firm. So, you know, you can say that one person can, can't be, make a difference. Well, I think one person can make a big difference if you get the right person, it seems to me. Well, I look, I go back to, again, when I got here, you know, Tom was the change agent that we needed at that time. Right. And, you know, and even uh, the board hiring me, they were fired change agent once. I heard it 20 times in the interview. And so I, I, I agree with you. One person can make a difference. So since you have the background in multiple property types, would Wash Reed look at mixed use properties that are predominantly residential yet offer retail and other amenities? How would you govern that type of diversification? I think, I think we it would really depend on the project, John. Um, and when and when I say that, you know, we we have right now. I mean, I think our our street retail and our apartment projects throws off you know almost a million years. So, what percentage of your space? I guess overall, it's it's fractional. The retail the retail's fractional. Less than five percent. Yeah, yeah, I'd say about that or less. But I would also say that, you know, we we joke here sometimes because we'll look at properties, you know, that have the grocer rate in the lobby and everything. Sure. And we joke, well, you know, we want to own the property across the street, not not the property with the grocer. You know, I think retail amenities are, are key, but we will always look at multifamily opportunities to create value for our shareholders. If a mixed-use development comes up, we haven't seen as much mixed-use in the suburban yes. settings, probably a little bit more urban. But even here in Northern Virginia, if we saw something we liked, yeah, we would take a look at it. So you still have one office asset, the Watergate. Yes. Talk about the strategy of keeping that and supposed to including that in the mix of the sale that you did, or you know what your long-term thought process is with that asset, just out of curiosity. Well, we've put a lot of capital dollars into it through the renovation. I know you saw that from Anthony Chang. And we, you know, we have like to maintain our optionality about, you know, where where this space ultimately ends up. We don't own this building anymore. Right. So we're just, we're giving it thought. We also had some leasing to do there. 
candidly. We'd like to get some, we'll be getting uh, one one block of space back, one floor. I just want to make sure everything's buttoned up before we make our final assessment on that asset. So that isn't necessarily a long-term. I mean, obviously, that's a whole different theme than what you're doing. So yeah. I assume that's an exit in the next year or two. You know, it's funny. People will pick on the Watergate, but like I said this to Don, I'm like, you're a multifamily guy now, you know, you're, you're doing as many apartments as you are retail. And, and it's just, I think right now I, people shouldn't focus on the Watergate. They should really focus on where we're going. That might be Wash Reed's new headquarters. Okay. okay. I get it. So I hear you. We'll, we'll comment further on that sometime. Yeah. Placemaking and amenities are now the key elements of multifamily operations. How is Wash Street positioning its properties to compete? Well, I, again, we talked about it, but I, I, I think we should drill into it a little more. The renter by necessity versus the renter by choice. Right. I was just reading one of our surveys the other night, and from one of our assets here, and we'll call those mid-market renters, the top three priorities for those renters First, safety. Second, the rent amount. Third, location. Okay, so different different renters. I placemaking is is here to stay, and we capitalize on it every chance we get. Mm-hmm. Okay, especially when we're repositioning an asset. You don't just want to do the renovations without redoing the infrastructure of, of the asset, right? Yeah. But I'd also say that you know I've been out some of our assets and the. You know, the mid-market renter that wants those three amenities, he's, you know, the the zero-gravity pool with a wet bar on the roof is not a high <laughs> priority for him. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious, but they, they're, you really have to break out and, and segment the demographic. And I think Grant and his team have done a great job of that. And that's, you know, like I said earlier, research really informs the type of amenities and service. And by the way... The services that they want in Alexandria are real different than the services they want in Macon, okay? And it's just, it's the subtleties of the different submarkets. Right. But, you know, I, I know we've done our homework and, uh, you know, placemaking is here to stay and amenities are clearly uh, an attribute that, that can really enhance a property. We just are, you know, I, I've seen more people, even here, and I know you've seen it too, kind of over-improve Understood. and reach. And so we're trying to be smart how we allocate the capital, but we'll always, we're always very cognizant of, of what it takes. Because bottom line, that those, those units have to lease, right? Yeah. One of my multifamily clients who I do some advisory work for, I've worked with them now for eight years, and their private firm, Young Partnership, their mission changed about four years ago to pursue, you know, B, working class, B and B minus, even C, multifamily assets in Southern Virginia and uh, South Carolina is where they are focused mostly. And they decided to come up because of their tenant base and what their needs were to come up with a a nonprofit entity that they're going to create called Brick Lane Better Communities, which is the name of their company. And they're setting up a way to raise capital, to promote the employment, the lifestyle of their employee, health, gardening, things that are kind of, you know, wholesomeness 
about that. And also, you know, financial planning and things that, you know, those that type of tenant might need or require. And then things coming out of the pandemic that, you know, make people feel safer. And, you know, on-site amenities like basketball courts or things that are sure. attributable to the to the tenant base that they have. And they've done it through a nonprofit, which is kind of, a, they haven't set it up. They're in the process of doing that now. But it's an interesting idea. So I just thought I'd bring that up. It seems to be not exactly the same of what you're doing, but you're trying to suit the needs of the specific tenant base that you have. Well, I think there's there's a, a pretty extraordinary opportunity here for, for Washbury. And, you know, we've, I've, I've, met all the the multifamily folks and you know people a lot of people like look down their nose on b housing or right. something and you have to remember i mean i ran affordable housing at freddie too so sure. i've seen the whole gamut yeah and what what you're referring to sounds like workforce housing to me and it can it can be done right i think what we're trying to do is for that mid-market renter we're trying to offer the highest level of service and the best residential experience and we found that, you know, these, these residents are loyal if you, if you do it right. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have, you know, the bright, shiny object all the time just no. to offer someone a good experience, a good home life experience, you know, at your property. Show your tenants you care. Yeah. I mean, listen, you walk, you walk, uh, into a clubhouse or you walk to the front desk, you know, hello is one word, but it can have such a tremendous impact. And, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, you know, Steve Riffey came from Marriott and we were talking about customer service and how it was in the hospitality space. And, you know, it, 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 when we go from business to consumer, it's, it, is a cultural shift from office and retail, right? And it has to be a mindset. It has to become part of your DNA from this day forward. And so that's what we're investing in here. When I talk about rebuilding the infrastructure, it's all about customer service, okay? And I think that, I mean, the folks that we have, and by the way, you know, we had a huge employment number. We really went low when we sold office and retail. And now we'll go back up when we internalize the, the residential operations. Mm-hmm. And from day one, we're, we are setting the standard about customer service and that, you know, it is, it is the reason for your being at the property level. And that goes for us here, too. I mean, people, if, if someone at a, at a property or a resident is having a certain experience that we need to have altered, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. So that is obviously the lens of hiring, too, I imagine, for yourself. So uh, when you hire, what characteristics are you seeking now? Well, I've used, uh, I've probably overused, and my apologies, John, I've probably overused the term change agent already here. But let me let me turn the question a little bit, if, if you don't mind. Sure. So I actually interviewed somebody yesterday. Okay. And, you know, great, great candidate. And he said, do you have any counsel for me as an interviewee, you know, what, what should I be looking for? And, mm-hmm. you know, after, with your, with your years of experience and he was being 
diplomatic looking at my gray hair, but he said, what would you, what would you offer up to me? And I, I said three things. First off, you know, be intellectually curious. Okay. All the, the folks that I've been around that have really elevated their profiles, they've been intellectual curious and you always keep looking, you know, until you've, you've gotten there, you've found it. And a lot of people, you know, it's like, okay, I checked the box. No, finish the job. Be intellectually curious. See it through. But I, I, that is number one for me. Number two for me is be flexible. There is, and I'm 37 years or 38 years in the business, there is no perfect job. There's nothing that, that fits perfectly in the box. And I look back on my career and some of my best experiences have been those impromptu challenges that mm-hmm. weren't part of my job. Right. I just jumped in. And so I, I, I think it's important that folks be flexible. I've had, you know, when we had retail and we had office, I was like, okay, hey, guys, we're looking at an apartment deal. The analyst that was running the numbers for retail, you're in multifamily. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of the wide eye, but look what you've got to do. Now you're, now you're learning two asset classes. There you go. Okay, so be flexible. And then third and finally, enjoy your job. Have fun. Have that was my next my next term. Have fun. I believe, and I can only speak from personal experience. You're not only will you be better at your job, people around you will be sure. better. We've all been around that person that is miserable, and misery loves company, and the mission is compromised. Have fun at your job, and if you're not enjoying it, it's a big beautiful world out there. You know, I tell employees here, and I get some looks sometimes. It's okay to leave. Okay, I've 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 said that constantly. I've said that at town halls. Number one, if I've hired, if I've done my job and hired the right people, and they're good, people are going to come calling, right? They're going to look at them. Of course. But number two, if that person has a good attitude and is happy at his job, he's a great ambassador for this company. He's going to do his job better, and he's going to elevate everyone around him. So that, that was my counsel to our, our candidate. You think you're going to hire him? <laughs> when, does this pl- when does this air? I'm still negotiating. Probably about three weeks from now. Yes, I'm going to hire him. Good. Good. Let's see. What, what person or pe- are people that stood out to you as inspirations and why? You've already mentioned Ray Ritchie. Certainly, it's one of your inspirations. So. I'll talk about him a little bit. But I mean, first and foremost, my parents, my mom and dad. You know, my mom worked on Wall Street. My dad was just tough, gritty Irishman. But the the mental toughness in the McDermott house was a must because you were, you know, it was, we liked ribbing each other. You know, we had that type of relationship, my, my brothers, sisters, and I. But my, my folks really, you know. Was your dad sarcastic? Not really. No. Not really. <laughs> he was serious. Okay. He was very serious. But but just you could just see the the grit and the determination on okay. his face. You know, my dad would come to a swim meet with a fedora, Ray Bans. You know, I mean, it was it, it was intense. And every my I coached once Secret Service around the president. Well, listen, he he was a sharp dresser, okay. and but he he really he and my mom they they instilled discipline. And, but my dad really, 
you know, from the clothes you wore, everything, it was like, I don't want you walking out of this house looking like a slob. You will get good grades or you won't compete. And they knew that was the, that was the carrot they could dangle over me is not competing. And, and really just, they were also, you know, you got to give back. You're not here to take. We were, you know, a religious family. We went to church every Sunday and uh, that was my upbringing. So it had, they had a profound impact on my brother and my sister and I still, we still joke about, you know, certain things they did or certain lessons we learned that were some tougher than others, but it had a lasting impact. You mentioned Ray. You know, when I met Ray, I like working. I'm a grinder. I make no bones about it. And I like people that are grinders. I've had, I've had the, the great fortune to work with some great teams over my career, but I never saw a work ethic like Ray's, you know, till, till we spent some time together. And Ray's ability to just, as I said earlier, just elevate everybody's game around him. Like you didn't, if you were on Ray Ritchie's team, you did not, you didn't mail it in. No, you were right there, and everything was on the field when you guys walked. Yeah, on time, it's five minutes early. You better believe it. I try to, <laughs> I try to beat him every one of our lunches or breakfasts. I'll show up fifteen minutes early, and he's sitting there going through emails. I'm like, and, he, and by the way, he's already got the check, right? But, <laughs> but he is. I just have not met an individual in the commercial real estate space that's so generous with his time. You know, if I've got a problem, you know, when I was interviewing for this job, you know, I needed counsel on, on different things and portfolio. Like I'm thinking of doing this, you know, Ray, Ray is just, he's just so gracious. And, you know, he and Ann, we, you know, Roseanne and I have gotten to know them. And, you know, when everything was happening with my son, I mean, there they were. First guy to walk through, uh, and I'll try not to get emotional here, but my son, you know, I told you he was born with complex congenital heart defects and wasn't going to make it. And, you know, we... How old was he at that time? Like, right after Newborn. Birth? Newborn. And we watched him get last rights twice. Oh, and goodness. First guy. First guy through the doors. Ray was coming down from Boston. was supposed to go to San Francisco. Came to D.C. First guy through uh, Fairfax, through the emergency room doors. Ray Ritchie. Wow. And, and with food. Because you probably didn't get to eat. You've been up all night. You know, I, I'll just never forget that. And, you know, I always tell Roseanne and, and anybody who'll listen, like, that's Ray Richie. And so that's why Ray had such an impact on me and just all the great things he's done for commercial real estate for this town. He's really has probably been the best ambassador that, that I could I could imagine. And, you know, I I like competing with Ray. He is... You know, he, he gets your game to another level and not a, not, a, not afraid to throw a couple high hard ones at you. So he's been great. And then one other one other gentleman I mentioned that I got to meet while I was at Acacia is a gentleman named Paul Mason. He was the managing general partner at the time of Sutherland as Bill and Brennan. And just his words, his demeanor, just wise beyond wise beyond words and always gave me sage counsel. You know, and I had to, you know, I told you I had to make some difficult was decisions. Was he on the board? Of he was not on the board. We we did utilize some of the Nasville a couple times. And Paul was, you know, just very thoughtful, not emotional in his reactions. And he just, mm-hmm. he really always gave me sage counsel. And my lunches with him, I mean, you know, when you genuinely look forward to, you know, sitting down with someone and I, I had, 
I, Paul and I really became close when everything was going on with, with Sean, the hospital. And he was just like, it'll work out, you know, and he just really, uh, calming influence, calming influence and can't, can't thank him enough. So, but you know, different people at different points in my career have had influence, but sure. Yes. You really stood out. I'd, I'd probably say those three. Mm-hmm. So ESG is important today with every real estate operator. How has Wash Reed implemented its sustainability programs? Well, we, we really dove into it and we've had, I don't know if you know, like we got the NIOP 2020 award for corporate responsibility for our ESG program. The district honored us, I believe in 2020 or 21 for the same thing. We have utilized green bonds in our capital market strategy. ULI, we're one of the companies that's committed to the zero carbon footprint for 2050, you know, big Mm -hmm. initiative. I'd say the most exciting thing, John, actually happened this past month. We are the first, we have the first multifamily assets in the United States that have been certified by BREAM. Eight eight assets, eight residential assets have now BREAM certification. It's their first certification of a U.S. company and it's Wash Reed. Wow. And BREAM is a, you know, leading sustainability assessment method and you can go on our website. I'm sure we'll be putting it up there soon, but that's, is that's that real European, time. That's my, is that a European yes. entity? Yeah. And we're honored to have it and we were honored to partner with them. But that's, I think that's a pretty big deal. I know people around here worked very hard in that green bond, you know, everything with purpose. We've tried to line up everything, but we have a, a great commitment to ESG and we have a DEIB council. And I think, I think a lot of stuff has gotten, you know, clogged with COVID and getting people back to the workspace, but I think Rosh Breed has made uh, tremendous strides and will continue to going forward. By the way, you want to be in our space and you don't have sustainability, you don't have an ESG program, half that Reed Mafia is not even going to take a meeting with you. Right. Well, so, you know, now that you've pivoted to a more of a consumer focus, yeah, that's even more important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Particularly the social part of it you know, the DEI type piece. Your tenants are going to be looking for that, I would assume. Sure. What are your life priorities among family work and giving back? You talked a lot about your family, so that's obviously important. My family has and will always come first. My wife, Roseanne, and I are coming up on 20 years, but we've probably known each other another 20. We have two sons, Sean and Jack. They... They are my entire being, John, and I'm hope, I hope I'm around long enough to see them come into their own. But the three of us were... Are your sons? My son, my son, Sean, is 18 and Jack is 16. Mm-hmm. And they're just... Two. Are they in school? Sean is at the Riverview School in Cape Cod. And really? Jack is at St. Andrew's Episcopal now. And I, I'm... Getting the normal teenage, the normal teenage antics, but they're they're just I can't call them kids anymore. They're great young men, and you know my, my wife and I are just very proud of them. And I'm just you know I'm I'm one of those guys. I'm I'm just very lucky to have the unit and, that I have. And you know I, I would also say that my family understands my passion for what I do. They understand work. They understand it's it's takes long hours and. Sometimes can be stressful, and but it allows me. I think what Roseanne 
really understood about it when she first met me, it allows me to compete, you know, and talk to Ray, talk to any of these guys. They love competing every day. They love competing for jobs, requirements, everything. And I have that in my DNA since I was a child. And, you know, that's, that's just something that, that I like to do, but I don't like to bring it home with me. Right. Sometimes it comes home. I mean, I you know, didn't get home till late last night and, you know, I was just talking to my wife about it, but all in all, I try to maintain that balance when I can, but being a CEO of a publicly traded company is 24-7, and we talked about that before I took the job. As far as giving back, I have always done so. My parents kind of instilled that in me financially and with my time. I've coached Montgomery County Special Olympics swim teams. I volunteered at Holy Cross Hospital at night in the ER and in the ICU. I've worked at local food banks, chaired the juvenile diabetes games, the real estate games mm-hmm. with Ray. Our company, I'm proud to say, Wash Reed has a community service committee. That's and great. we've gone and done restoration projects in underserved neighborhoods in D.C. here. And we've also, you know, fixed up a Ronald McDonald house over by Nova. But the, the, the activity became a little muted during COVID. You know, a lot of people had to, had to temporarily halt some of their activities. But like I said, we've got everybody coming back on February 22nd, and I'm really looking forward to getting that community service back in gear. They're, they never left, and they're dying to get out and do it. It's really just the places we wanted to go have had some restrictions. So what were your biggest wins, loss, and most surprising events in your career? Uh, that's a that's a good one. God, Ray's gonna Ray's gonna think this is a, a biography on him, but I, I'd say we won the Securities and Exchange Commission headquarters, and the that was our biggest win to redevelop the Acacia site. Right, and then it, the requirement promptly got canceled by the administration. So that was a win and a loss. That was a that was a two bagger there, John. Getting the when I look back on my career, I would say getting that lend lease job really allowed me to play at another level right? with not just one capital sources, with 200 capital sources, mm-hmm. STRS, PERS, SWIB, ADIA, you know, I mean, it just really, it, it, it was a different, I, I always told people, it was like, you know, you kind of went from playing with the Toledo Munheads to the Yankees all of yeah, a sudden. Sure. And it was really, and the guys I worked with there were so creative putting putting real estate deals together. So Lend-Lease was really a victory. I told you I loved my time at Rockefeller, not, not just for the business, but to experience in, while you're doing business, a different culture. Right. It, and I, I, in another life, I think I came from Japan. I, I just, when I hit the ground there, it was like a warm blanket. Really? Yeah. It really it shocked me because when I drove in from Narita and I arrived at like one in the morning and then, you know, went into the Peninsula Hotel downtown in Mitsubishi and it was the most calming thing. And then when I walked the streets the next day and, you know, kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, I mean, but it was just, I love that experience. I love that culture. And that's why, I, you know, I'm still friends. Like I told you, I still have colleagues at Mitsubishi that I still keep in touch with that was that was the trouble was tough but that was it and then you know i don't i make a philosophy here and everybody knows it i don't fall in love with deals so I, i'm not going to say you know buying that portfolio was the greatest deal like mm-hmm. i make it i make it a business not to fall in love with the assets 
because then I think you miss something when it's time to sell. That's nah, good. We can milk this for a little bit longer. I've seen people squeeze every drop of juice out of an asset. It's like, ah, oh, you missed your window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just portfolio management discipline. So I try not to fall in love with any of the assets that we have. That's probably your Freddie Mac speaking right there. It is. It is. I, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I had some favorites. But, you know, again, as far as losses, geez, any deal in 06 or 07 where we were putting out capital and we didn't know there was this massive devaluation coming. Right. And I got, I rode that wave out and I rode it back to shore. And it was tough. It was it was tough to be a part of. It was tough to watch. It was tough to basically take out your partners and no equity and working with lenders on recast debt. It was it was challenging. So anything along that, anything along that line it, during that time frame was I would consider a loss. What about a surprise? Big surprise. Something that came out of left field. That, wow, this is it, man. Well, I'd tell you what my my friends would tell you. They would tell you, Paul McDermott, chief credit officer at Freddie Mac, what is what is that? That's, that's, that's the fox running the hen house. But it was one of the greatest credit educations of my life and just a phenomenal experience. And, you know, I've, I've talked about my son, Sean. He was, you know, born with complex congenital heart defects. And, you know, I was at Freddie at the time. I mean... Of all the people there, I mean, the chairman called me and he's like, we got this, you know, and my wife and I, when we, Sean was getting last rights, we moved into the Ronald McDonald house. Wow. You know, I closed the door. It's the Freddie Mac room. Wow. Donated by Freddie Mac. Isn't that so? And Freddie was magnificent through all of it. Adrian was a star. And, you know, I, I that, that really... That took the, the surprise was twofold, just the professional move, but on a personal level, just how gracious people could be. I had never really experienced that. And I was so surprised at how many people showed up at the hospital and would drop stuff off. And, you know, I mean, Ann Ritchie would come by and just, wow. just really people. I was also surprised at some of the folks that were my partners stuff that didn't show up folks that I had really done a lot of business with that that was a real lens into humanity on on different levels John I'll never forget that and that that had a pretty deep and lasting impact on me yeah so yeah um, that's interesting because uh, so how's your son doing now physically is he doing okay or he's doing great he asked me if he could dye his hair on our last video call so he's right where he needs to be. And okay. my wife and I, you know, I, I looked at Roseanne and I was like, you know, I kind of, 18's right about the time I popped and my dad started like, you know, I came out of military school, right. you know, and carrying a saber and wearing a uniform and having a crew cut. You know, I grew my hair long, grew a beard, pierced my ear, you know, did all the things that could disrupt a, a disciplined family. But so my son, I think Sean's right on cue right now, but thanks for asking. He's doing great, and Jack's doing great, too. So, like I said earlier, I'm extremely lucky. That's great. So, what, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Paul? Besides duck? Well, I was 25. I was working full-time, and I just started graduate school at night. Mm-hmm. So, my days were, you know, I'd leave at 6 o'clock and get home at midnight. 
And I would probably, John, have told myself, don't be afraid of taking risks, even though I was at a life company that was extremely conservative. But, and not that I, I didn't, but I would tell myself, you know, push yourself more, right? reach for something more. Okay. And when you get it, push yourself some more because mm-hmm. I was just getting exposed to a Ben Jacobs, you know, a Ray, the Bob and Ray show, right? right. Chris Roth, Ed Crow, Bill Alsop, Ed Hines. And, yeah. and like these guys were pillars of the real estate community. Exactly. And I was like, I can do this. Okay. I just need to get on the right path. And so I started really just laying out a path for myself, finish graduate school, get more portfolio management experience, mm-hmm. take this as far as you can go, map out your next point. And that's, uh, but it did require me to push myself more. And could I have taken more risks when I was 25? Yes, of course I could have. Would I do it again? You know, things have, things have been okay for, for my career. I'm comfortable when I look back, I don't yeah. I'm comfortable with I mean, when you left uh, working for Centennial, you could have said, well, hey, maybe it's my time to do what Pete Scamardo did, you know? Yeah, like but, Charlie and David. Right, like they did. Yeah, but Atlantic Realty. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? That's a, that's a great one. I carry, I mean, I, we have a quote that my 12-year-old said at breakfast one day to me, and it was literally when I was, before I was going into the board to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to blow this thing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I was unnerved. You know, it, it's a it's a awesome task to walk into your board and say we should probably get out of office. I mean, RIP wasn't known for it wasn't known for retail. It had retail. It wasn't really known for apartments. It was known for office, it was. right? And so to say you're gonna you're gonna tear out the roots of the fabric of the organization. So my son Jack, he said he said to my wife and I, we were just sitting around sipping coffee and I wrote it down, Dad, don't worry about what you think might happen. Instead, think about what you want to happen. There you go. I love and that was pretty profound for a twelve year old. But that's what I would that's what I would write up there is we spend so much time, John, worrying about a lot of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what's important in life is your family, your faith, you know, your friends. And if, if I've taken nothing out of this COVID experience, it's really, you know, people, I think people should have total clarity on what their priorities are. Right. You know, after what we've gone through the last basically two years mm-hmm. of our lives. And we're not done yet. But, you know, I employ people that it sounds funny, but you know, we talked about it. One of the counsel I give. You gotta be happy. Be happy with yourself, be happy with others, be happy with your situation, and if you're not, change it. So Maybe you've done that. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. It's a great interview. I enjoyed it a lot. John, thank you very much for including me in this and uh, you know, look forward to hearing. Thank you. Thanks, John.